Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's the middle of the week. We're doing a podcast. It's This is going to pretty much be released on Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to you. Um, you, how you too, doing? Josh. I'm doing well. The, the wife and kids are cooking downstairs in the kitchen, so that'll be good tomorrow. Um, we don't have any extended family over. It's just us because it's kind of our it's just nature of where we live but it's gonna be good awesome glad to hear it i'm uh meeting up with my family in san diego it's kind of equidistant for all of us and so rented nice. out a place uh hanging out here for the week great weather it's it's been good so far i'm looking forward to lots of food tomorrow and uh just kind of kicking back and relaxing nice what are uh what are you thankful for this baseball off season i'm thankful that we I'm honestly thankful that it's normal. Um, I'm, I'm thankful that we had, you know, look, we, when we started this site in 19, 2019, we didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic the next year. And then we sort of got, okay, we're back to normal 21, but then we weren't really because the pandemic wasn't over. And then we had a lockout. And it was like, oh, crap. And so, like, I finally feel like we're getting back to normal. We had a relatively normal season, and now it looks like we're having a relatively normal off season. So I'm just thankful for that. I 100% agree. You took the words right out of my mouth on that one. I, I'm <laughs> thankful for normal activity and normal schedule. John, I'm thankful we have a Rule 5 draft this year. <laughs> I, I yeah, love hey, the Rule five. 5 draft and everything associated with it, and we, we lost that last year. year. Yeah. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful the Angels are, are spending. They're continuing to spend. It looks like, at least for now, they're hanging on to Shohei Otani and trying to give it one last ride with him and Trout. And so I'm thankful yeah. for that as a fairly neutral observer who just loves both of those players. Yeah, a lot, lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful we have a lot of fun trades and signings and stuff to talk about on this episode, which you, you can't always say this early into the offseason. So I'm, I'm thankful we're getting to a, a decent start to the offseason, not going to just sit around on our hands until January waiting for everyone to sign and get traded. So <laughs> Enough of that. Let's, yeah, let's totally dig, dig into it. Absolutely. So... Let's start with the biggest one from the last couple weeks. Uh, the Blue Jays traded Teoscar Hernandez to the Mariners in exchange for two pitchers, uh, right-handed reliever Eric Swanson and left-handed pitching prospect Adam Mako. Uh, this one <laughs> this one ruffled some feathers on Twitter um, in, in a pretty big way. Uh, we didn't quite get ratioed by any means, but we had some people pretty upset in our mentions about this one for sure. <laughs> So let me let me read through the values. So it's Hernandez to the Mariners. We had at 8.4 million in median trade value. In exchange, Eric Swanson at 10.4 and Adam Mako at 5.4 uh, to the Blue Jays. And so that came out ultimately rejected by the model. Uh, just too much in value going to the Blue Jays compared to going back to the Mariners. And there's a bunch of different angles we can kind of hit this one from. There's a lot to unpack. There's hernandez's value specifically and then swanson and mako where they may be a little too high um i think just from a broader level of the trade i'll i'll, I'll say my piece here and then let you kind of take over on the nitty-gritty of it from a broader level it's the mariners adding a big bat which they sorely needed they kind of had a top three in their lineup and then it really thinned out after there and and that's not even mentioning that they at least for now have lost mitch Haniger to free agency um, 
So they really needed the lineup depth, that's for certain, and they absolutely had more than enough of a bullpen to deal from. We've talked about how the Mariners' farm system is very depleted. They're not going to be making too many big prospect-heavy trades because they just don't have many prospects left to trade. Uh, But the bullpen is definitely a position of strength, a position of depth, and losing Swanson doesn't hurt them too much. We've had a lot of people mention that Swanson wasn't even a guy they really... he, He had a great regular season, but he wasn't a guy they trusted in the playoffs or down the stretch, it seemed. So he clearly wasn't one of their top, top guys. Instead, they'll move him for a position of need. And kind of similarly on the other end for the Blue Jays, plenty of offense there, uh, but they do have some holes they want to address and they are kind of running up there on budget. Hernandez was set to make, I believe, was it 11 million? Um, trying to pull that up right now. He's in his final year of 14. arbitration. 14, 14 million. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so... That's that's a pretty high price to pay for him, even though he's he's a quality player, but defensively lim- limited, corner outfield only. Um, so so there's kind of a ceiling on his value and how much he could be worth, and I think they'd be better off reallocating that money elsewhere. And they also add to a bullpen that they've kind of been it's kind of been a work in progress for them the last few years. It seems like they're always adding a couple relievers in the off season and a couple more at the deadline, trying to shape that out back there. Um, so overall, it makes, you know, even if the values don't line up perfectly, it makes all the sense in the world uh, from a fits perspective. Um, do you want to get into the values of each of these three guys specifically and kind of yeah. why they fell where they did? Yeah, sure. I, I don't think we were low on Swanson or Mako. I think we were low on Teoscar, to be honest. When I looked at it the next day, I was like, you know what? We forgot two things. The first one is the qualifying offer because he's entering his walk year and this was sort of a thing that was a wash last year because they were a lot of teams thought it was going away with the last cba and so we kind of forgot about it and i forgot about it so i'm going to confess like oh crap i forgot about that qualifying offer draft pick so in other words if you hold on to a guy in his last year and give him a qualifying offer and and he rejects it you get a draft pick and so that should be added to the value of the player Teoscar fits that criteria, so he should have been uh, bumped up a little bit because he comes with a potential draft pick at the end of the year. So that's number one. Number two, um, <clears throat> he's also the kind of player that can help a team in October, what we call the October bonus. They don't, The teams don't have to pay the salary in October, but if you're a playoff-minded team, we should have thought about this in advance and said, okay, well, if he does get traded, he's going to contender, and that contender is going to want – him with an eye towards the playoffs in October. So we should have added a little bit of bump that way. So if we had done that, it would have been like lined up just about fair. And I think that's that that was the main problem. So I'm going to take the responsibility for missing those two things. Uh, so that's my first point. Um, <clears throat> second point is uh, most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people were surprised by our values and they didn't realize that the Blue Jays were sort of playing chess here instead of checkers because they're saving 13 million net because Swanson's only making a million and they got rid of the 14 million <clears throat> off of Teoscar. And so they, to your point, they can reallocate that 13 million and, you know, sign Brandon Nimmo, for example. Um, and they've got a really good reliever and a decent mid-tier prospect to boot. So they came out looking pretty well once they reallocate that money you know i think it'll become a little bit clearer to blue jays fans oh okay that's why we did that so we're just sort of missing that step but that's going to come i think soon um so 
you know, the last point I want to make is a more general one. And we saw this a lot in sort of the Twitter comments. Um, our, our, our philosophy here is that trades are based on surplus value. A lot of people are, who are not familiar with the concept can't quite get their heads around it, to be honest. All they're thinking is, Teoscar, oh, he's a fan favorite. Wasn't he an all-star at one point? He's really good. Why did they trade him? They're not thinking about, oh, he's only got one year of control. Oh, he's making $14 million. You know, they're, they're just thinking about sort of the lineup and the hit and the fan favoritism. And they're thinking, they got these two guys? That doesn't seem fair at all. We got fleeced. And so we got a lot of that. You know, sort of a knee-jerk reaction um, as a kind of a sort of emotional reaction, probably. But also, I sort of get the point that, you know, people think about it in terms of field value, like good player. They're not thinking about all the other sort of pieces of the puzzle. So we find or found ourselves having to explain that to people. And when we do, it, it sometimes takes them a moment, but you know, a lot of people say, oh, okay, thanks for explaining. Um, but it really is a hard concept for the for a lot of people to grasp. And so I think it was sort of a, a bellwether in a way that says, oh, we still have a mission to educate a lot of fans into how this works. Because most of them, a lot of them, I should say, don't understand that. So it was a sort of a reminder, at least for me, that we need to do, to do more uh, to do more educating on that concept. Absolutely. Yeah, plenty of that there. And I also don't want to diminish it in saying that, you know, anybody who disliked the trade or disagrees with our values or the models evaluation of this trade, I don't think everybody who disagreed it necessarily fell into that category where they don't understand surplus. I think there were a lot of people who do understand surplus and had some some valid and some less valid concerns and, and questions criticisms about it and i think you just addressed a couple of those of yeah we were maybe a little bit low on hernandez i think there is an argument that we were maybe a little bit high on maco as well which i think we'll learn in the coming months as prospect evaluators update their rankings and you know maco has had continue to have trouble staying healthy it's looking more and more likely like a reliever and that dips his value even further if he can't start so possible we were a bit high on him as well and then the one other kind of category of criticism we've we've received is people who do understand surplus value and just dislike it they dislike that this is the way the game operates they i think rightfully so criticize ownership for raking in money hand over fist and keeping to a pretty limited budget for for a lot of these teams and yeah especially when you look on the lower end you know there's the, the pirates who are just profiting from a garbage baseball team <laughs> and the A's who are now kind of sitting on revenue sharing checks and plenty of these other teams. And there's even plenty of complaints to be had kind of in the middle where, you know, the giants haven't really spent the last few years, despite being in a pretty massive market and, and all these wealthy owners and all of this. And I, I think there's room to be upset with that for sure. I, I just think that airing some of those grievances, some of those frustrations toward the model, toward are the concept of trade values, the concept of surplus value and how we're showing it is maybe misplaced, I, I think, because just because we have this model, we have these values, we are basing this all off of the idea of surplus value doesn't necessarily mean we're saying we're for or against anything like that, or we're for or against ownership setting a hard budget and forcing teams to work under this budget. We're kind of just evaluating the market and, and that's what it is this, this is how teams operate this is how the system operates teams have models similar to ours we know that for sure 
and, and we know they factor in salaries when they make these trades. That's just kind of a fact of the market, a fact of the game. And so we're just trying to emulate that and provide a tool to fans that allows them to have some fun and make some trade proposals. We're not in any way trying to support the system in place or making any commentary about it whatsoever with the model. It's just, this is how it is. This is how it works. And here you go. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're trying to make it fun for a lot of folks who like to play armchair GM. And if you want to play armchair GM, you know, let's try to make it realistic. And if you want to make it realistic, you have to understand that concept. Um, I do sympathize with one other sort of um, point that sometimes comes up, though, which is that, um, you know, people sometimes say, well, they're not interchangeable. Like field values should surpass uh, surplus values. Like a good player, you should, like money should not be uh, an object. If you really want to get a good player, overpay to the cows come home because that good player is rare. And yes, I, I sympathize with that as well, but there's also sort of a constraint. And that doesn't mean we have to throw out the whole concept of surplus value. Uh, in other words, you know, the whole concept is you're basically field value minus your salary equals your surplus. And so you're basically saying the salary doesn't matter. You know, again, just to be realistic, we do think the money matters. And because all front offices that we know of, even the bigger ones, are operating under constraints that are imposed by their owners. It's not unlimited. Even Steve Cohen's Mets are going to hit a wall. So, you know, that is still a valid concept, and most trades are are based on that concept. You know, the Mookie Betts trade a couple of years ago, it was a little bit high because he's a superstar and he's a rare get. And yes, but, you know, we can, that's why we call the AFV column in our model adjusted field value. We adjust for that, for superstars. They get a little bump up. And that usually takes care of it. So it's not like the super, the concept of surplus value is off. It's just that you want to sort of, you know, account for the market demand for elite players a little bit more than you would for sort of the normal players. That's the only difference. It's not that you have to base the entire thing on, on field value and disregard the money completely because that doesn't work. So the model is sound, I think. It's just a matter of sort of kind of reiterating those points. Yeah. And one last thing I want to bring up from this that we bring up from time to time is the concept of uh, of framing this in terms of free agent dollars. So taking a look at Teoscar Hernandez, we have him at $8.4 million in surplus. And so adding that on to his projected $14.1 million in uh, arbitration salary, you get $22.5 million total adjusted field value, that, that metric you were mentioning. That's kind of a gauge for what would this player theoretically receive on the open market. If in, instead of being traded, let's say last year was his last year of arbitration, Teoscar Hernandez hits the open market this offseason and he's only looking for a one-year deal, what's he going to receive? As you mentioned, there's the October bonus um, as well as the qualifying offer consideration uh, that we should have factored into his value but didn't. So maybe you bump it up a little higher. 25 26 27 million dollar range but do you think any teams would really be willing to go too much further than that for one year of teoscar hernandez i i don't think so that we i don't think we've seen that no. I mean, obviously we haven't seen many examples <laughs> of lofty one-year contracts like that unless you're talking about the high aav on guys like verlander and scherzer in recent years and i, I guess the bauer deal is kind of its own thing but it, it's kind of a good litmus test for if a value sounds correct or not you you take the adjusted field value and say okay over the years of control that they have remaining does this make sense for a contract 
And you can look at it the same way with Swanson as well. I believe, you know, he's at 10.4. I believe he's projected for something like four or five million in contract over the, the remaining years of his deal. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you for let's just just pulling the rough numbers out? Let's say 15 million over three years. Does that make sense to you for Swanson? Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. yeah. He's a he's a capable reliever, maybe even just a tad low. Um, but yeah, that that makes some sense. So so that's kind of a good way to gauge and kind of reframe the values and what they mean. And if it makes sense from that standpoint, then the value probably makes sense. The the, the trade value itself probably makes sense as well. Absolutely. And to be fair, you're just rearranging the numbers in the equation. We're saying field value minus salary equals surplus. And what you're saying is surplus plus salary equals field value. So like, it's the same thing. So just rearranged. Exactly. Okay. I think that's enough on Tay Oscar. I'm sure the Mariners mm-hmm. are happy to have him and looking to make more moves. And I guess the one last thing on the Blue Jays is we've mentioned reallocating the money. We've mentioned Brandon Nimmo. They've been connected to Cody Bellinger as well as a few others. Um, I, another perk of this trade was they, they previously had both their corner outfield spots pretty much filled by Hernandez and Lourdes Gurriel. Uh, but I think they really want to move George Springer to a corner if they can. He's mm-hmm. continued to be a, a, a great player, a great hitter. Uh, but as was kind of predicted and as has kind of been the case throughout his career, he's had some trouble staying on the field. And so hopefully moving him to a corner could help out with that. Plus he's, only getting older his center field defense isn't going to get any better from here on out so if you're motivated to move him into a corner then you have to move one of Gurriel or Hernandez and Hernandez was the more valuable more sought after player um, and, and also more expensive closer to free agency so seems to make a lot of sense that out of the two they would choose him so just wanted and to bring that up. It's, no, it's no surprise they're now linked to guys who can play center like Nimmo and Bellinger exactly yeah all right, staying in the outfield market, but let's talk about those angels I mentioned earlier. Uh, so they just just the other day made a pretty aggressive move. Um, they honestly, it's it's not too dissimilar from the Hernandez deal, just a slightly lower profile player, so a smaller return. Uh, they picked up outfielder Hunter Renfro from the Brewers. Um, I'm pulling up the values right now. He was at 1.9 million in median trade value. In exchange, they sent the Brewers three pitchers. It's Adam Seminaris, left-handed pitching prospect at 0.7, and two young right-handed pitchers, Jansen Junk at 0.5 million, and Elvis Baguero at 0.4. So it's 1.9 versus 1.6, accepted by the model. Fair deal. Yep. Um, so what we're looking at here is Renfro, like Hernandez, he's in the last year of team control before he hits free agency. Like Hernandez, he's... Uh, set to make a decent chunk of money. I believe he's in the 11 million-ish range. I'm trying to That's find right. this. Uh, yeah, 11.1, yeah, 11. there... I think it is. Yeah, something like, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that sounds but right. Definitely 11. Yeah, uh, and that's just, uh, it's it's a pretty fair contract for the type of player he is. You know, he's a, a flawed but decent power hitter, and he's he's got kind of inconsistent corner outfield defense where he's got a cannon of an arm, but... His metrics kind of sway year to year, and he's made some errors out in the outfield with uh, with the Red Sox a couple of years back. And so not, not not a gold glove outfielder by any means, but kind of has his ups and his downs out there. Um, and, and so with that offense, that comes to like a two or three win player or so. And then when you take in some of the market adjustments and some of the risk and the aging curve and all of that, it brings him to being worth pretty close to what he's being paid. So, you know, if his, if his 
value is if his uh, excuse me if his arbitration projection is 11 million and his surplus is 1.9 then you're looking at about 13 million in adjusted field value which sounds about right for him um so the brewers on the other hand they have a lot of questions to answer a lot of holes to fill and their team's not cheap by they, their standards and so it's pretty clear they're looking to shed some cash uh, they move renfro in this deal that moves about 11 million for them add some pitching depth for them there's some reports that they're going to be looking at moving Colton Wong next to free up another 10, 11 mil. Um, so pretty clear what their motivation is right now. They're kind of reshuffling some pieces, hopefully opening up some money to make other additions. And the Angels on the other end, they're continuing to do their very, very best to put anything close to a 500 team around uh, Trout and Otani. Because <laughs> if you if you get the rest of that team up to close to 500 and let Trout and Otani do their thing, you're headed to the playoffs. And that's what they're shooting for all it costs them here is an interesting ish pitching prospect and a couple depth arms in junk and Pagaro. so it's not a big cost from them in prospects but this along with a couple other moves they've made is starting to tick their their budget back up so we'll see what else they have in the tank there uh but just on its own this seems like a perfectly fair deal for both teams it makes a lot of sense for where both teams are headed and uh, Hunter Renfro gets to stand in the outfield next to his doppelganger, Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I like this trade for both teams. Um, but, you know, it does raise a couple of questions. First of all, from the Angels' side, I think you nailed it with, like, just trying to get to 500 with complementary players around their two superstars. Um, you know, because they've had kind of this stars and scrubs thing going on where, like, yeah, you got Trout and Otani, but then who else? And so at least if you put... Uh, Renfro and right, you've got a competent kind of two war ish guy. You know, he's got some power, he's got a good arm, so on. Uh, so he, you know, he's an average major leaguer. Uh, he's making some money, so you didn't have to give up much for him in terms of trade capital. Uh, and you're going to talk about Gio Urshela next, and that's another sort of, you know, capable ish, you know, major league regular to fill a spot. So they're just trying to sort of slightly upgrade from bad to mediocre, you know, in these complementary spots, um, hoping that the two superstars can carry, you know, it's easier to win when you have, you know, great plus mediocre as opposed to great plus bad. So I think that's the equation here. And you said earlier, they're giving it one last shot. I agree. You know, notice that both Urshela and Renfro only have one year left in their contract. Otani only has one year left. The, the team is rumored for sale. I think this is like the last hurrah. This is like, okay, we got to go for it. Trout's not getting any younger. So, you know, this is this is it. Now, it's interesting to me, if you're an Angels fan, if you're going to go for broke, why not go for broke? Why are you getting these sort of average-ish players instead of like, you know, going out there and signing to Grom or something or go get, get in the air and judge sweepstakes? You know, like, well, if you're going to go for it, go for it. And so I think there's going to be a complaint on that side. But on the other hand, you can't at least... You can't blame them for trying. So that's the Angels' side. The Brewers' side, I'm starting to wonder, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, are they going to be rebuilding? Are they tearing it down? You know, David Stearns left a couple of weeks ago. Is that the kind of thing? You know, when Theo Epstein left the Cubs, it was clear that they were rebuilding. You know, sometimes you see these signals beforehand, like, okay, we decided to rebuild. That's our strategy. And then you see the moves being made that clearly rebuild. And even you could look at the hater trade last summer as kind of a, a first step towards that. And they're getting rid of some money now with Renfro. They may get rid of some more money with Wong. You know, uh, rumors have, have started to percolate that they're listening in, quote-unquote, on their two best pitchers, Corbin Burns and Brendan Woodruff. So, you know, is that... 
are they resetting, you know, things a little bit, or are they just, you know, waving the white flag and saying, okay, we're going to rebuild? So that is a big question right now with them. Yeah, I think they're certainly listening on that. The one thing, or what, there's a few things to give me a little bit of pause with saying they might be going into a full rebuild. For one, it's that they already have a fairly strong farm system. It's maybe not top 10 in the sport, but they got Jackson Chorio, who's a stud, really rising in the ranks. Uh, they have a decent crop of young outfielders. Uh, Sal Frelick, Garrett Mitchell, uh, Joey Weimer, a couple other names there, where it seems pretty pretty likely that that was a big motivation toward them moving Renfro, as they just feel comfortable with those guys replicating the production at a much lower price, and they needed to open up a spot for them anyway, so why not? So they have that group there. If they do move Wong, we have him as being a little underwater anyway, if I'm not mistaken. We were a bit surprised they picked up that club option on him. So it's not like he's necessarily irreplaceable as well. Mm -hmm. So at least for now, they haven't necessarily made any moves that are totally indicative of a rebuild. I do agree that's a direction they could choose to go. And and maybe if they do, that's it's kind of a half halfway in the water type of rebuild where maybe they hang on to Woodruff because he's a little bit, he's a half a step below Burns. He's more of a two than an ace and hang on to him and extend him at a rate that they think is more affordable to them and capitalize on Burns and get a massive return for him. That'll help out the next strong playoff Brewers team with Woodruff and Freddie Peralta at the front of the rotation. I wonder if that's something they might consider either now or the deadline or next off season. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I do think getting, you know, both Woodruff and Burns are two years away from free agency, and so they may be less inclined to listen on an extension. At this point, they might just want to wait, wait the market out. So, you know, but I could see, you know, if things don't go well for them, you know, let's say they don't trade Woodruff and Burns or, you know, move any other major pieces. Um, I could see them sort of giving it a shot, maybe for a wild card, and then if it doesn't work out, they're trading those guys at the deadline. That may be the strategy at this point. The other thing, and and this is kind of an elephant in the room, but that Kristen Yelich uh, contract is really, really an albatross for them right now. He's that's He just hasn't been himself the last couple of years, and he's owed a whole bunch of money, and it's a big chunk of their, their payroll. And so they're trying to work around that, uh, work around the edges of that. But he's not obviously you know, earning his keep. And and that is a big thing that they're they're dealing with right now, I think, as well. Yeah, the the one slight silver lining of the Yelich deal is that it, it's at its peak now. You know, it's at its highest value per year now, and it's twenty six million, which obviously not cheap, and that's obviously going to cause some problems for a mid to low market team like the Brewers. But that's also not in the thirty thirty five million dollar territory that you see some players. Uh, looking at Steven Strasburg and Anthony Rendon there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so it's it may be a little bit less of a, an anchor than it could have been. Plus, he's not totally underwater, like he, he, underwater contract wise, yes, but he's still producing some value on the field and you could squint and try and fix him. But yeah, that's it's looking rough. He just fell off a cliff there. Um, back to the Angels, though. Uh, let me just go ahead and read out the Gio Urshela trade as well. Uh, it's Urshela from the Twins, who we had at 0.4 million in median trade value in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Alejandro Hidalgo at 2.0 million in trade value, so also accepted by the model. Urshela, very similar situation, very similar player to Hunter Renfro, where he's a 
you know, two to three win capable starting infielder. Uh, his best position is third base, but he's got some flexibility for sure. Um, a solid player, nothing to write home about, and his salary projection is getting up there in his final year of arbitration. He's slated to make $9.2 million in his final year. And so, you know, the Twins, they aren't necessarily in the same spot of trying to cut cash as the Brewers are, but they pretty clearly... They want to bring Carlos Correa back, and if they miss on Carlos Correa, they want to bring some other impact player in instead. So whether that's Sander Bogarts, whether they shift to pitching and look at Carlos Rodon, or even Jacob deGrom would be kind of a stretch, I think. But they're looking at the top of the free agent market. They have some money to spend, and they just don't think Urshela is the best way to spend it right now. Uh, they have some other infield options as well. Jose Miranda, maybe he's a third baseman. Maybe he's not not 100% on that one, but... Luis Arias has some defensive flexibility. Uh, Nick Gordon played a lot of different positions for them down the stretch, so they're not going to miss Urshela too much. For the Angels, it's an interesting fit. They obviously have Rendon in place there, and he's making all that money. If he's healthy, he's going to be their third baseman. But if he's healthy is a big thing for Rendon. So I'm sure there's going to be plenty of opportunities for Urshela over at third base. Um, Jared Walsh is their first baseman and he has really struggled against left-handed pitching. So Urshela sees some time there. David Fletcher hasn't been healthy all the time. So maybe Urshela gets some time at second base. He could also fake it at shortstop, but I think they'd want someone better there. I think I also saw a report that he could play some corner outfield. So he's really just going to be a utility guy for them. Start all over the field and, and be a perfectly average player while he does it. Um, Back to the payroll question for them, though. They're adding, between Renfro and Urshela, they're adding more than $20 million in, $20 million in projected payroll. And yeah, this is a team that had some guys come off the books, but it also had Otani, whose salary jumped from that super affordable, like, 6 or $7 million that they paid him last year up to 30 So they're actually one of the few teams that's uh, current estimated 2023 payroll is higher than what they finished the 2022 season at. So they're already up to 192 million in projected payroll. And there really aren't that many names they could trim from the roster to cut any salary. So we're getting into some questionable territory here of how far are they actually going to go with this? They obviously still have some holes in the rotation, in the bullpen, in the middle infield for sure. Uh, they, they could really use maybe a trade Turner type. That would be an awesome upgrade for them. I don't think they're going to open up the checkbooks that much when they already have Trout and Rendon on the books. But even if not him, they could use some quality players up and down the, the field. Their farm system's kind of weak. They're going to have to add more salary beyond this. It's just a question of how much and was Renfro and Urshela really the best way to spend that $20 million plus when you are kind of heading toward a limit here. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that they're in, they've been adding salary via the trade market instead of the, you know, the free agent market. Now, granted, the free agent market still hasn't really gotten going. Typically, the top pieces kind of move, and then everything starts to trickle down from there. So everyone's waiting on Judge and the big pitchers. But you know, they're making small to mediumish moves, and maybe they're thinking, okay, I can't. We can't wait. We just got to go for it. So let's get some, you know average-ish players in that will at least be uh, slight upgrades over what we had before. And by the way, this is another tell on what they think of Joe Adele because they just traded for his replacement in right field. So those of you who think, oh, Joe Adele still has some value, there's a whole bunch of reasons why he probably doesn't. Um, and one of the big ones is his team just traded for his replacement. 
so even they're kind of losing hope there. Um, so, yeah, you know, we know also that the angels have a very weak farm. So it's not like they're getting reinforcements from the top of that farm. And maybe they just made a decision that, look, we're not going to get it from there. You know, try not getting any younger. Well, times for last year. So let's just spend some money and see if we can just get there. The last point I want to make is when you look at their situation in the AL West, the Astros are world champs. I don't think this is going to be enough to catch them. The Mariners are also going for it, and they've improved dramatically, and they were a playoff team. So maybe they catch them. Maybe they're trying to go for like a second wild card. Who knows? Maybe there's a chance. But I at least got to give them credit for going for it. Yeah, I 100% agree. And also, yes, we know they signed Tyler Anderson as well. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, continuing with this Urshela thread, though, let's talk about the fallout here. A couple other deals. Uh, first, the Twins, to kind of backfill for him, they acquired a utility man, Kyle Farmer, who we had at negative 0.3 million in median trade value from the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for right-handed pitcher Casey Legumina at 1.2 million. So basically what they did here was they swapped Urshela for Farmer, where Urshela is obviously a better hitter, but Farmer's a better defender, plays positions that are of greater need to the Twins. And in exchange, they picked up a slightly better pitching prospect. Um, the, the pitcher Hidalgo that they got from the Angels is slightly more highly regarded than Legumina, who they sent to the Reds. And they got a few million dollars cheaper. So Farmer's projected to make $5.9 million in arbitration compared to the 9-ish that Urshela is headed for. And as I mentioned, he's just a better fit for the Twins roster. They don't really have any other shortstop options that they're too comfortable with on the roster, whether we're talking about them missing out on Correa or even if they get Correa and he's injured or needs some DH days or whatever. They were looking at Jorge Polanco, who they moved off of shortstop because he wasn't getting it done there, or Nick Gordon, who's looking much better in the outfield than at short. Or previously, they were looking at Urshela, who is not really a shortstop. Um, Farmer gives them a more traditional backup there. I don't think he's catching anymore. That was kind of one of his key perks. Uh, yeah, that was that weird, he, right? <laughs> yeah. He, so he didn't catch at all in 2022. He played some short third base, first base, DH'd a little bit, which is odd. But Reds, yeah. I guess, they, they didn't have anyone better for that. Um but in general, it's just a more flexible player for their roster. They did have plenty of defensive questions last season. Urshela has always been kind of an eye test over the metrics type guy. Uh, Correa had a really rough defensive season by the advanced metrics. And Arias looks like, you know, he can play a bunch of positions, but he probably should just stay at first base. And so that's not a very strong defensive infield that they were previously looking at. Uh, but Farmer is a is a quality defender, and he'll be able to sub in in a lot of different spots, get guys DH days uh, or just off days in general, and uh, yeah, just kind of shore up the bench a little bit for them. So a good depth move on their part, and saves them a few million dollars to downgrade from Urshela to Farmer. Yeah, and I don't have anything else to add other than, yeah, it is weird when you see a catcher move off to the shortstop. I remember, well, Kiner Falefa did that. He started out as catcher. And some guys are just athletic, and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll catch, but they're really shortstops. But it's rare to see, okay, a guy who is a catcher, and then he goes over to shortstop, and he does okay there. Uh, I remember even a couple of years ago when Russell Martin was still playing, they actually played him at short. I don't know, and when he was like 38. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's just, I think it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what the 
timeline was for Farmer in the minor leagues. I don't remember if he started as a catcher or he started as a position player and tried him out behind the plate and then moved him back to being a position player. I don't I don't remember what that looked like. Um, I could look it up, but I'm live on a yeah. show, so I'm not going to do All that. right. <laughs> Whatever. Not a big deal. <laughs> All right. Last move of the kind of fallout here was the Reds were suddenly without a shortstop. And so they picked up infielder Kevin Newman from the Pirates. Uh, Newman at 0.0 million in median trade value. And in exchange, they sent right-handed pitcher Dory Moretta to the Pirates at 0.8 million. So once again, accepted by the model, uh, very low-end depth move. Newman has shown a couple flashes, but he really just looks like a glove-only, weak, slap-hitting infielder. Um, doesn't hurt to add some depth. You know, O'Neill Cruz took over in Pittsburgh, so Newman didn't have a spot there. Uh, he was looking like a non-tender candidate. The Reds, though, they can give him a shot. They don't really have much else up the middle right now. So why not, I guess? But this isn't anything to really dwell on for too long. No, except that it does sort of, much like the trade for Renfro is a signal that the team doesn't believe in Joe Adele. This is a signal that the Reds may not believe in Jose Barrero, who should have been the heir apparent at short, but has struggled very, very badly. Um, and so... And the Reds are, are not really contenders. So if anybody's going to give a shot at a prospect, you would think they would give a shot to Barrero. And maybe the plan is to, you know, have have Newman mentor him a little bit. I don't know. Just but but it doesn't bode well for Barrero in this instance. Agreed. Yeah. Um, not not a good sign for him. And I'm trying to pull it up. Does Newman have options remaining? I kind of doubt it. Um. Uh... Da, da, da. Oh, Kevin Newman somehow has all three options remaining. So, at worst, he's optionable depth, I guess. I guess, yeah. I mean, he's getting older oh. for that sort of thing, but yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, next move. Let's head back to the Mariners, actually. And this is kind of fallout for them from the Teoscar Hernandez deal was they had too many outfielders and you could argue that they still do, but that none of them are good enough. So they might actually make another addition in the outfield there. Um, but they definitely had too many outfielders, and so they lined up well with the D-backs, who also have a bit of an outfield surplus, but their outfield surplus is specifically left-handed, and we, you know, we could even see them move from that surplus later on. Uh, but anyways, these two teams lined up very well on this deal, where the Mariners sent Kyle Lewis to the D-backs, who Lewis we had at 0.0 million in median trade value, in exchange for catcher outfielder Cooper Hummel at 1.2 million. Uh, this one's really interesting to me. It's really fun. So Lewis is obviously the big name here. He was the rookie of the year back in 2020. Since then, he has not played well and has not stayed on the field. And so that's why his value has tanked so quickly. He's on the older side. He was kind of a questionable, you know, he was a top, top prospect and then started to flame out when he got into the upper minors and then came onto the scene in 2020 and really made an impact and looked like, okay, he's back to being that guy. But the last couple of years have kind of dashed those hopes a little bit. And so he's, you know, this this isn't, we're not talking about, you know, what would happen if Julio got traded two years from now. Lewis wasn't that kind of prospect when he made it to the big leagues. And so it, it seems in line with what his expectations were at that time that he has fallen this far, if that makes sense. Um, plus just with the injuries, he's, it's been his whole body, <laughs> but it, yeah. especially, he's had an ACL tear. He's had plenty of lower body injuries. 
it's tough to see him manning center field on an everyday basis again, where he was a, pl- a quality defender and that was a good chunk of his value. And so if we're talking about, you know, he might not be moving as quickly. He might not steal as many bases. If we're talking about like a power only, uh, probably a good amount of strikeouts, corner outfielder who's on the short side of the platoon, he's a right-handed hitter. That's just not looking like a very valuable player. And, and obviously there's a chance that he rebounds con- completely to his 2020 rookie of the year self, but it's looking very unlikely at this point. The greatest predictor of future injury is past injury. And he has a whole bunch of past injuries on his ledger right now. So he's just not looking like an impact guy. There's a reason the Mariners were ready to move on from him, Uh, but he gets a decent fit in Arizona where they have three left-handed hitting outfielders penciled in Alec Thomas, Dalton Varsho and, uh, and Corbin Carroll, who's their, one of their top prospects. Um, additionally, they have Jake McCarthy, who's another left-handed hitting outfielder who was excellent for them down the stretch. So there's potential for them to move one of those names to help the roster elsewhere. But either way, Lewis as a right-handed hitter fits in well. And the Mariners pick up a pretty interesting player in Cooper Hummel, catcher outfielder, switch hitter, uh, big on base guy was never really a top prospect, but kind of just performed as an older player at the upper minors. And so he'll be an interesting bench piece for them. Uh, he has some options remaining. He can, like I said, he can catch, and they actually cut uh, Luis Torrens, one of their backup catchers. So maybe he gets some opportunities back there. Just a better roster fit for them, and and saves them a few bucks as well. Yeah, I have nothing else to add other than yeah. I think with Carlos, it was just all about the injuries. His knees are shot. Let's be honest. Like he's not gonna. He's he can't run much. And, you know, he looked really lost when he came back from, I think he had a concussion uh, last season, this past season, and um, just was just not, not, you know, and, and maybe that's a temporary situation, so maybe that, you know, hopefully restores itself, but even so, um, you know, at this point, he's just like a short side platoon DH is what it looks like, because I don't think he can play much in the field anymore with those knees. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're moving into the moves that were very clearly, very directly influenced by the roster crunch. Uh, roster crunch is happening around the 40-man protection deadline. So as we've discussed many times in the past, um, this deadline that came up a few weeks ago was for adding prospects, or I guess any minor leaguers, to your 40-man roster so that they are not eligible for the this, this year's upcoming Rule 5 draft. That's in a couple of weeks, John. I'm excited. I know I already mentioned that in this episode, but we're, we're getting close to that. Um, so the rule five draft uh, players, minor league players with a certain level of years in the minors based on how old they were when they signed and, and some other factors. Um, they're eligible to just be scooped up by any other team. Uh, the other, the acquiring team has to keep them on the roster throughout the whole season or return them to the original team. So it's kind of an interesting gamble. You'll see rebuilding teams especially take a chance on plenty of prospects, add them to their roster, hold on to them as long as they can. And if if they click, if they look like a solid major leaguer, then great, you just got a prospect for free. Um, so there's always a shuffle around this time of year when those prospects need to be added to the 40-man roster to be protected because you got to make space for those guys. And we've talked about two teams in particular at length of they always have this issue, and especially in these last couple years, they just have too many quality prospects in the minors that need to be protected. And so they need to shuffle guys around on the big league roster. And sometimes that includes making trades that aren't quite value equal for them. You know, sometimes they have to give more than they get because every other team knows that they're having this roster crunch. They're in this situation. 
Uh, so the first of those two teams is the Cleveland Guardians. John wrote a great article about them last offseason that ended up being kind of moot last offseason because there was no Rule 5 draft. They still ended up making some protections and making some deals, but we didn't really see the full fallout from that. Uh, mm-hmm. But now we're going to see it all this offseason for sure, this upcoming Rule 5 draft, because they there's some decent names that they had to leave unprotected, and they made some trades to protect other names, etc. So they made a couple deals um, on the protection deadline day. This first one, though, maybe wasn't directly related to all of that um, because they actually acquired a Rule 5 eligible player and added him directly to their 40-man roster. So this one was a weird one. They traded infielder Nolan Jones, who we had at $14.9 million in median trade value, to the Rockies in exchange for second base prospect Juan Brito at $3.0 million. So big value gap there. This one was rejected by the model. And... On the surface, it's, you know, at at first glance, it's like, wait, what? So Jones was a former top 100 prospect, big power bat. He's up to the big leagues, left-handed bat, can play some first base, third base, corner outfield. He kind of looks at a glance like a player that the Guardians need. They don't really have a solid first baseman in place. You know, there's Josh Naylor, but he's... He plays in the outfield as well, and he's also not lighting the world on fire. They, they could always use offense in Cleveland, and it seemed like Nolan Jones was in a position to provide that for him, even if his stock had fallen a little bit since his top 100 prospect days. On the other end of this, it's Juan Brito, who's an interesting prospect, don't get me wrong, but a primary second baseman and in the lower minors but already has to be protected it's it's not a profile that we typically look at as being particularly valuable. So it's a, a curious trade at first glance. What you kind of have to assume is, A, Jones' value, Nolan Jones's value is lower than we had him on the site, whether it's, you know, his continued lack of dominance at the upper minors, continuing not to make an impact at the big league level either, uh, scouting evaluations of him decreasing you know maybe he, there was some flaw in his swing that they were hoping would be fixed by now but it hasn't the high strikeout rate is still there for sure um so all of these factors and he's just not as as highly regarded of a prospect as he once was and on the flip side you have to imagine that well a juan brito has kind of spiked up since the last evaluation and he's he's going to be moving up the rankings when these prospect uh analysts release their new rankings for the offseason you have to assume a he's going to be spiking in those and b he's maybe a player that specifically the guardians have identified and and really like that's really the only way that this makes sense for them um i I think even with those adjustments you could probably still argue that it's that they didn't quite get fair return for jones that maybe another team would have given them more but it's it's hard to say that for sure from the outside yeah no i think you nailed it i mean you know in this game, there's always things we don't know. Sometimes there's a lag when you know we we're only getting we don't we don't have access to proprietary information that the teams have, and so we we have to rely on public sources. And sometimes those public sources are lagging behind, so we are therefore lagging behind. So maybe there's something we don't know about Brito yet that well, like wow, they they really like that. It's probably going to come out in the wash in the next couple of months. Like oh yeah, he did rise in value, and you start to see him moving up some lists. Um, <clears throat> Jones feels like he's still got six years of control. Steamer still likes him in terms of his, you know, expected production. So I, you know, we may be a little bit high, but not too much. So I think it's more about being low on Brito. I think he's going to shoot, you know, based on, you know, when you see a team like that sort of covet a guy, and even though he was Rule Five eligible, they still want him. 
that suggests that there's something they really like. So I think that's where the movement is going to be. Now, the other implication of that is Cleveland already has a lot of middle infielders. So the question is, why would they want yet another one? Um, I suspect there's going to be moves coming that will answer that question. Say, basically, yeah, we liked Brito more than these other guys. So they're going to be trading some of these other guys. I suspect. I agree. And we've got way too much other news to get into today for me to go too deep speculating, but a bunch of those middle infielders to the A's for Sean Murphy really just works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, the A's could use, well, the A's have holes all over the place, but certainly they yep. could use, you know, a couple of those guys. Yeah. Yep. And they like targeting guys that are close to the big leagues and, and the Guardians have plenty of those guys. Tyler Freeman, he, he's already an A in my mind. Come on. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, quickly back to Brito. There's, there's, this is not in any way meant as a slight on him because he, especially just looking at his performance in 2022, yeah, this is a definitely a guy who could be rising in the prospect rankings. He walked more than he struck out in A-ball as a 20-year-old, 11 homers, 17 stolen bases, 407 on base. Looks like a quality player for sure. It's just that you know, he's a primary second baseman. He came into the year as a 40-plus FV on fan graphs. He's listed as 5'11", 162, which is something that's certainly something um just not it's it's funny that these are the two teams on the sides of this because we could very much look back on this trade in five years as oh my goodness the rockies traded away the next i don't know jose altuve wander franco whoever you know short infielder jose ramirez you could even say you know short infielder who doesn't really look like an impact player but just performs Whereas they traded for the big hefty slugger in Nolan Jones, who strikes out too much and ends up being a platoon first base bat who puts up a 780 OPS every year or something. You know, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. we could absolutely be looking at it this way. And it makes sense that if you're thinking along those lines, it makes sense that the smarter organization in Cleveland was getting Brito, whereas the kind of traditional old fashioned Rockies pick up Jones. And to be fair, Jones is going to probably hit a bunch of homers in Colorado. So they probably anticipate that and like that. So, you know, there's that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. And then the other move the Guardians made was they sent right-handed pitcher Carlos Vargas to the D-backs. Vargas we had at $1.4 million in median trade value. In exchange, they received right-handed pitcher Ross Carver, a minor league righty. Uh, we did not have him in the system at the time of the trade, and I am trying to pull up his value right now, but I'm running into some issues with the site. Um, so if I if I can get that pulled up, I'll mention that as well. Uh, but just, you know, it's just another 40-man shuffled move. Vargas is an interesting enough pitcher. He had some injuries. You know, the, the D-backs have some room on the 40-man to give him another shot. And and Carver's not a poor, not a bad pitcher in his own right. And it's <laughs> I saw plenty of jokes about how dangerous it is to trade a guy named Carver to the the guardians with with how well they develop pitchers you know mm-hmm. it's right there he's going to be carving people up you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> now we had him at 1.2 um okay it, it looks like yeah so it looks pretty close yeah so again just another 40 related 40 man influenced uh, depth move there all right now moving on to the other team that has to make these trades every year and this is the tampa bay Rays. we've talked about it more than enough uh, and they ended up making three deals along these lines um, on the Rule 5 protection deadline day. The first one, they traded Xavier Edwards, an infield prospect, had him at $7.9 million in median trade value, to the Miami Marlins, in exchange, uh, along with uh, right-handed pitcher JT Chagua at $0.0 million. 
In exchange, the Rays received two right-handed pitchers, Marcus Johnson and Santiago Suarez. At the time, they weren't in the system, but we have since added them. Johnson's at 2.2 million. Suarez is at 1.2 million, so it comes out to 7.9 versus 3.4, which has this as a moderate overpay for the Rays. Um, but this is definitely one that'll come closer as the offseason goes on. Edwards' value is, is falling. He's a light-hitting middle infielder who just hasn't quite put it together for them. Uh, he was kind of seen as more of a glove and speed type guy, and, and the the hit tool just hasn't come around. He hit 246 in AAA last year, and he's still young for the level and batting averages and everything, but he's going to need to hit a lot better than that. He's going to need to get on base a lot a lot more than that to be a more than just a bench player for them. And so with his stock falling a little bit, he's already on the 40-man, and they ended up shuffling, picking up a, two, a couple lower minors pitchers that they seem to like. Makes a lot of sense for them, for sure. Whereas in Miami, they could use all the help they could get, especially offensively. Um, they seem to have some sort of weird relationship with the Rays. Like A lot of the time you see these geographically similar teams not making as many deals with each other, but the Marlins and Rays have been pretty active. Uh, they, the, Ray, uh, the Rays sent them Joey Wendell last year. There was the Nick Anderson, Jesus Sanchez trade. Um it's probably a couple others from recent years as well. Seems like they have a good relationship. Um, Miami needed some more relief help as well. And JT Shagwa, we had him as kind of a non-tender, you know, making as much as he's worth. But uh, still a solid middle reliever for them. He'll help out the bullpen for sure. And yeah, they get to gamble with Edwards on a guy who used to be a, a top 100 prospect. Yeah, um, I don't have much to add. They do this every year. There's more still that you haven't announced yet. So the... Yeah, they're just taking guys that are sort of fringy droppers from their 40 and adding guys who don't need to be on the 40. And if the Rays do their magic, you know, one or two of those guys they pick up you know, that are at the lower edges of their system are probably going to rise as well. Yep. I, I realized for these last couple of trades, I'm talking way too much. I got to let you give your opinion on these guys. <laughs> so, okay, we're good. Uh, okay, we're good. Giants picked up Brett Wisely from the Rays, another 40-man move by the Rays. Uh, Wisely is an infielder. We had him at 1.3 million in median trade value. Uh, in exchange, the Giants sent the Rays outfielder Tristan Peters at 0.1 million. The Giants just acquired Peters last deadline. Uh, ah, it was from Milwaukee in exchange for Trevor Rosenthal, uh, yeah, which was a weird it. trade in itself. <laughs> yeah, they the the Giants signed Rosenthal and then traded him like a week or two later while he was still rehabbing and then he never ended up pitching for the Brewers. Weird yeah, weird turn the, of events. And the A's are still paying Rosenthal because they preferred yep. his money, so mm -hmm. that's all weird. Yeah, uh, but not a ton to get into there, I don't think. So let me just go ahead and lump in the other one. Uh, the Rays traded utility man Miles Mastrobuoni to the Cubs in exchange for right-handed pitcher Alfredo Saraga. Uh, Mastro Buoni was at one point, oh wait, that's the wrong one, 2.6 million in median trade value. And did Saraga get added is the question. Uh, uh, he was... Yeah, let, let me uh, dig that up a little bit. Uh, yeah, we have mm -hmm. like the 1.3. 1.3 versus 2.6. That sounds yeah. like it's accepted to me. Mm -hmm. um, do you have anything on either of these to get into? It, it no, seems other like than Mastroboni looks like looks like a utility guy, and utility guys are always sort of fungible and kind of bounce around a lot. So they figured he was probably expendable because there's lots of other guys who can do that. Didn't the Cubs recently add a similar player? 
Uh, who McKinstry? am I thinking of? Zach McKinstry. Yeah, yeah. They picked up Zach yeah. McKinstry from the Dodgers. Exactly. It's yeah. it's interesting. I'm not sure what's going on there. It could just be a coincidence, but uh, I don't know. Something don't to keep know. an eye on, I guess. Maybe Jed Hoyer likes roster flexibility. Guys who can play all over the the diamond. Um, so, I mean, you know, the Dodgers do that very well with, you know, more talented players perhaps than these guys. But, you know, there's something to be said for that. Mm-hmm. All right, and last trade we're going to talk about today, the Mets acquired two right-handed pitchers, Eliezer Hernandez and Jeff Brigham, from the Marlins in exchange for right-handed pitcher Franklin Sanchez, as well as a player to be named later, or Cash. Um, we had both Brigham and Hernandez at 0.0 million in value. At the time, we didn't have Sanchez in the system. I'm guessing he's at 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, something along those lines. 0. 0.2, um, yeah. 0.2. And cash or player to be named later to the Marlins. That's going to be nominal at best. So this is a fair yeah. trade. Yeah. Um, very clear what's going on here. Hernandez and Brigham were both DFA'd by the Marlins, uh, you know, essentially non-tendered. And uh, because the Marlins didn't want to play pay their early arbitration salaries. Uh, but these are two optionable, decent major league pitchers who at the very worst can be minor league depth for you. And... The Mets have deep pockets, and they're more than willing to pay a couple million to these guys combined to have them sit in AAA for them and be the next man up. So uh, it, this is very just, very clearly just the Mets flexing their pockets once again, flexing their budget, and picking up some depth basically for free. Yeah, and I think it's smart of them to do that because you know they're obviously shopping in the top of the market. You know, want to resign Degrom? They're even talking to Verlander. You know, obviously you know, they've lost you know both Degrom and Bassett and. I can't remember if they picked up Carrasco's option. I think they did. Uh, but anyway, they've got some rotation holes to fill. So by by signing, at least, well, by making this trade, at least Eliezer Hernandez can eat some innings for you. So you're covered. So you don't look quite as desperate, like, oh, my God, who's going who's gonna to pitch for us? At least you've got that, right? Because they really didn't have much depth at all. So they needed to at least kind of work back to front and say, let's get the back solidified so that we're not quite as desperate as we might look. <laughs> so then we can then go shop at the t- top of the market and, you know, and be strong about it. Yeah, and this isn't a case where they're going to be talking to Jacob Degrom and and he's going to say, "All right, I want forty five million in salary in twenty twenty three, or I'm going to the Yankees." <laughs> and and I don't think this is going to be a case where where Steve Cohen goes, "Ah, man, I wish I could give you forty five, but I just committed two million to Hernandez and Brigham, and I, I just can't do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm stuck at forty three. That's my max offer. That this is not a team or an owner where that's going to happen. So." It's no. really no cost to them whatsoever. No, no, no. And I saw something about how uh, Steve Cohen's business is up like seven billion dollars in value this year, or is his stock investments? You know, he's he's you know, that's his that's his business. So like, this is not even <laughs> couch change for him. You know, this, you know, it's all fungible there. Yeah, it really seems like the only thing limiting Cohen's budget with the Mets is a the the draft pick compensation that would be required if if he really blew past the luxury tax for a very extended period of time and b just the the shame and pressure of other owners to (laughs) to keep spending reasonable and and i guess you know a motivation by cohen to not give the other owners and manford any reason to set a hard salary cap because if he really blew past it that's that would come next for sure 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember the George Steinbrenner days where that was an issue. Like he was doing that. It didn't really exist the same way as, as it does today, but he was just basically laughing at everybody else and saying, I'm going to buy all, your, all the stars. And they're like, okay, now wait, this isn't, this isn't right. So it's happened before. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for trades for this week. Uh, but we still have tons of other news to get to. Uh, there is also plenty of free agent decisions and plenty of non-tenders like we alluded to. So let's jump right into the free agency. Uh, we discussed on the last episode the players who received qualifying offers, the 14 players. And all but two of them rejected. So the only two who accepted, and we kind of expected this when we were talking about it last episode, Martin Perez and Jock Peterson. They both accepted a one-year $19.65 million contract from their current teams, so Peterson is back with the Giants. Perez is back with the Rangers. This seems totally expected. We talked about it at length last time, how we didn't necessarily have these players projected to be worth $20 million in field value in 2023. But these are kind of unique situations where both of these teams have money to spend. They both seem to like these players. Um, Peterson in particular, he had a great offensive season, but his defense just took a sharp downturn and so if they think they can fix his defense or they think they can hide it in some capacity then maybe he is worth that that range for the Giants and Perez just is a guy the Rangers have fallen in love with and it, they they were not going to let him hit the open market they they seem to have decided that pretty early last season and they mm -hmm. didn't trade him at the deadline they've been talking to him about an extension for the last eight to ten months it seems like and yeah they, they just weren't gonna let him hit the market they wanted him and they get him yeah, he was a bird in the hand for them. They clearly need pitching, so and they like him, and he likes them. Seems like the feeling is mutual. So, I think you know, and he wasn't that far off. We talked about it last episode. Like it's based on sort of probability. Like, you know, our model has him at like you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Like that's close enough. Where even if he rejects it and you get a draft pick, you can, that that kind of covers some of that gap. So like, yeah, you're close enough. I think we had Peterson is lower than that, like ten or eleven. Um, so that was a bit of a stretch, but you could make extenuating circumstances arguments for uh, for the Giants there as well. I don't think his defense personally is fixable. I'm not sure that's something you can really do other than like Ron Washington and Marcus Semyon back in the day. But you know, stranger things have happened. I think he's just a good hitter. Yeah, and that's a team that could always use as much offense as they could get in that ballpark. So go ahead, overpay a little bit for a hitter. Why not? Yeah. Um, as far as the other qualifying offers go, obvious acceptances were Judge, Turner, Bogart, Swanson, DeGrom, Rodone, Nimmo, I mean, Wilson Contreras. Oh, yeah, yeah. Duh, excuse me. <laughs> declines. <Yeah. laughs> yes. Yeah. Aaron Judge, Trey Turner, Xander Bogart, Stansby Swanson, Jacob DeGrom, Carlos Rodone, Brandon Nimmo, and Wilson Contreras. They all declined, which was very obvious. Uh, two other guys to talk about. Uh, there, there's four names left on that list that we need to get to. The first two, Anthony Rizzo and Tyler Anderson. Each of these players signed multi-year deals rather than either accepting or rejecting the qualifying offer. Um, so I guess by signing this, they technically did reject it. Um, so the Yankees re-signed Rizzo on a two-year deal. Uh, it's a $40 million guarantee. $17 million in salary in 2023 and 2024, and then a $17 million club option for 2025 with a $6 million buyout. This seems a little bit richer than we might have expected for Rizzo. He was it already is. kind of questionable yeah. to get the, the $19.6 million qualifying offer, and this only brings that 
salary down a couple million in 2023 plus guarantees him that same salary in 2024 plus the six million dollar buyout in 2025 so it seems a bit steep for a guy who's just been kind of above average as a first baseman yeah uh and you know the defense isn't quite what it used to be which really helped him out helped him be such a valuable player with the cubs yeah and now he's just kind of you know a solid first baseman a 132 wrc plus in 2022 that's not bad at all but he's getting older you can't continue to project exactly that for him over the next couple years uh it seems like there was a lot of you know there, there was some pressure from the yankees from a bunch of different directions on this one he and aaron judge are reportedly very close don't know if that might have played a role i feel like with that one you're getting close to the whole hey, the White Sox picked up Yonder Alonso because he's Manny Machado's brother-in-law. <laughs> and John Jay was his best yeah. friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that one, <laughs> it feels like a little little silly there. Uh, yeah. But but beyond that, you know, he's a good fit for the ballpark. They don't have many left-handed hitters. They don't have many left-handed power hitters. There wasn't a whole lot else on the market at first base. After Rizzo, you're looking at Jose Abreu, who's a right-handed hitter. Josh Bell, who was terrible in the second half. Not a whole lot else there at first base on in free agency. And there were reports that the Astros are one of the main teams that was looking at him. And so, you know, even if it's even if you end up overpaying by a little bit, A, you're the Yankees, you can afford to do so. Mm-hmm. And B, it keeps him from going to your top rival in the American League, essentially, who who just embarrassed you in the playoffs and you can't have one of your fan favorites going to that team the following offseason. You you just can't let that happen. So whole lot of extenuating circumstances additional pressure on the yankees to get this deal done yeah so by the numbers they were paid by about 10 million um so we had him at like you know 30 he's at 29.2 let's we can round that up to 30 and say okay they overpaid by 10 ish million um and that feels about right you know given that he's getting older to your point he's not quite the defensive defensive guys he wants he's 32 he's gonna be 33 next year you know, the Yankees, but, you know, I, I keep hearing stories that he's really great in the clubhouse. He gives tips to the younger players. He's kind of a mentor. He's like, oh, change your batting stance. And, you know, people listen to him. So he's kind of a kind of a captain kind of guy. And I think they need that for their glue. You know, they've got the Yankees are in this weird position. We've talked about this before where they're trying to sort of change the makeup of their lineup. You know, they're a little too, like, power-heavy. Not a lot of guys who can get on the base and set the table. Not a lot of guys who can kind of take that smart at bat. Rizzo is a smart professional at bat every time he comes up, and I think he sets an example. And so maybe I'm thinking that's worth something. That's all I got. Yeah, the one other thing that I see here, and it's a very minimal thing in, in the Yankees' favor in this deal, um, but we don't necessarily have it built into the model because it might be kind of hard to do so. Um, but the club option. So mm. obviously we have it as, you know, it, the way he projects out, he's not expected to be worth $17 million in field value in 2025 uh, for that club option. And so we have it as just a straight $6 million hit against the salary, right? Mm-hmm. But the club option is only a plus for the Yankees you know aside from the the buyout of it you know let's let's just assume that if not for the club option Rizzo would have demanded 20 million each year and so he still gets that six million dollars or whatever but just no club option so obviously the club option yeah the 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 buyout there is is a minus for the Yankees but the club option itself 
is only really a plus for them. They, they, they can't really get burned if he's bad. You know, if he's bad, oh, well, we just buy it out. Versus if somehow, and, and this is, you know, this isn't the case. This isn't the player to make this case on. This isn't the player to die on the club option has positive <laughs> trade value hill. It seems very, very unlikely that Rizzo would be the guy to, yeah, to, you know, to really break out in some crazy way. And, and suddenly that deal looks like a bargain for that club option. But the fact that that possibility is there, there is a possibility that Rizzo could look like a $20, $22 million player in 2025 and the Yankees get to have him for cheaper than that 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 that's a tiny bit of a plus so okay yeah the word possibility there was the key well and and that was sort of amend that to probability the probability of that is low but it's not zero so I take your point there's something there that just the slightest probability that he could you know turn it on, turn on the Jets and be really great the next two years and they'll want to, you know, that happens and they'll get him for a reasonable price. Yeah, there's a probability of that. It's a small one, but it could happen. So, you know, it's not zero. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to make more of a general point about club options than saying anything specific about Rizzo in this one, mm-hmm. where there's the obvious club options like, uh, like the ones at the end of Jose Ramirez's original contract where it was like $12 million a year and it's like, duh. Of course, that, of course, that's just a twelve million dollar a year salary. There's no question about whether the Guardians would have exercised those options. So whatever, we just kind of counted as salary. But there's flexibility involved with club options, and so even when you know when they first sign the deal, if it doesn't necessarily look like one that would be accepted, it's still a plus for the team to have that option down the line on whatever off chance that this player in the last years of their deal, the last years of their career are still productive and they've kind of beaten the aging curve. Well, the Yankees or whichever team has these club options will get to benefit from that. So just kind of a broader point about those. Um, The other player who signed a contract rather than uh, going with the qualifying offer was Tyler Anderson. We mentioned it earlier in the episode. He went to the angels. He got a three year, $39 million contract. So 13 million a year, Uh, a, bit different from Rizzo with Rizzo he got pretty close to the qualifying offer plus a second year plus the buyout versus Anderson he gets uh, almost seven million dollars fewer seven seven million dollars less than the qualifying offer per year but he gets it spread out over three years and I think I mentioned this last time that that's sometimes what we see pitchers prioritize is the multi-year commitment Anderson in particular though he was phenomenal for the Dodgers in 2022 he's into his mid-30s already and isn't necessarily doesn't have the track record by any means but it looks like he really found something with the Dodgers I've heard a little bit about him pitching from different arm slots depending on the handedness of the of the batter and so he's kind of two different pitchers in one he just pitches completely differently to right-handed batters than he does to left-handed batters and it seems like that's a new thing he started to do with the Dodgers and it's really helped him he had a 2.57 ERA for them in almost 180 innings. He was just a a really a mainstay uh, of that rotation and that kind of stability. Even if it's not quite a 2.57 ERA, even if it's more in the three to 3.50 range, that kind of stability is what the Angels need in their rotation. A guy that they can really lock in for 150 to 180 innings at an above-average rate and really just let the rest of the rotation fall from there. So, really a perfect fit here. Yeah, he was a four-war player for the Dodgers, and, you know, he's turned himself into kind of a really strong number two. Otani, I think, could lead that rotation and should. 
Um, and so now you got Anderson as a two, and then you got a couple other guys who can kind of fill in from there. You know, Sandoval's turned it on, kind of quietly underrated picture there. You know, Reed Detmers is, is kind of coming into himself as well. So, like, you know, the knock on the Angels has always been they need pitching, but they're starting to have pitching, so maybe that's not the knock anymore. The other thing is, from Anderson's point of view, he turned down the QO at 19.65 only to, you know, accept a lower AAV, around $13 million. But, as he said in interviews, look, I'm not getting any younger. This isn't my chance at a payday. So thirty. So he was just looking at the total. So $39 million is better than 19 because he could turn into a pumpkin in a year. He could go down with an injury. So he wants to lock in the $39 million. And, frankly, I don't blame him. So good for him. And I think the Angels get a little bit of a bargain here. So good for them, too. Yeah, I agree. And this is by far my favorite of their pitching additions they've made the last handful of years. I mean, not counting Otani. That's kind of his own thing. But the Matt Harveys and Trevor Cahills and even last season's Noah Syndergaard, that all just looked wrong from the get-go. <laughs> like, th- those felt wrong from the very beginning. It's like, really? They gave up a, a draft pick and paid Syndergaard $21 million coming off a Tommy John year and it has no innings built up? And, and before that, it was like, really? They're committing like $15, $20 million combined to Matt Harvey and Trevor Cahill? <laughs> and I mean, they, they yeah, picked up Alex bad. Cobb in there and he was good for them. So they weren't all misses, but those three in particular, they felt bad from the minute they happened and then they turned out kind of predictably. Yeah. Whereas this one feels pretty good from the beginning. I, I like it for them. And the last two guys I want to talk about from the qualifying offer list are just the last two edge cases. Uh, both Chris Bassett and Nathan Ivaldi ended up rejecting the qualifying offer. Bassett is barely even an edge piece. He's just kind of the last one on the list of, of guys that really should have rejected. Um, he's he's kind of on an island on the free free agent market for pitching. There aren't too many other like really solid established don't have many warts mid rotation guys you know there's some injury guys in the mid rotation tier there's some uh, a handful of options there but Bassett's kind of on his own he'll get a nice deal I guess you could maybe compare him to Jamison Tyon but I think Bassett's a little bit better um so he's gonna get himself a nice multi-year deal I don't think there was any there's any strong argument that he should have accepted the qualifying offer Eovaldi's kind of a different case, though. He's interesting. I was a bit surprised that he got the offer and a bit surprised that he declined it. What's your take on Nathan Eovaldi? Well, I mean, he has he's he's been up and down, right? When he's on, he's really good. And I think that's what drove the qualifying offer because, you know, there's always a little bit more demand for good pitching than supply. And so if you look at the optimistic case, he's saying, yeah, he's a good pitcher when he's on. Now, the downside is he's got two Tommy Johns. He's kind of a yet another sort of injury waiting to happen kind of guy. So you never quite know when that's going to blow. <laughs> so, but, but he's good when he's on. So, like, they're taking a shot, right? So that's how I see the, the Red Sox point of view for offering it. And from his point of view, he's like, I'm really good when I'm on. And he knows his body better than any. So he's, but he is taking a chance, to be honest, given his health and kind of inconsistent track record. There is a bit of a risk there, but he's betting on himself, so I don't blame him for that. Um, So it's an edge case. It could go either way, but I can see both sides. I'd really have to think at this point he goes back to Boston. I don't know if he's going to get the money he wants anywhere else with him costing the draft pick now. Just looking at his performance the last couple years, he was excellent in 2021. He had, you know, he posted a 375 ERA, but 279 FIP, 5.7 F4, since that's based on FIP. 
that's a really solid pitcher. He just had yeah. some rough luck with Babbitt. That that seems like that's what happened. Rough luck with Babbitt, rough luck with Strand rate. Okay, it happens. Then this year, very similar season on the ERA front, 387, but he made 12 fewer starts, and he was only worth one win above replacement by Fangraphs because his FIP ballooned back up. So similar results, but way different process. He lost a bunch of strikeouts, gave up a ton more homers, and he struggled to stay healthy, and he's going to be 33 next season. So I don't know. I, I think that $20 million prove it deal might have been a good option for him where, hey, if he does flame out, he got $20 million, 19.6, mm-hmm. whatever, on the qualifying offer. Yeah. Or he gets a chance to prove it again that he is more of the 2021 guy than the 2022, and then he gets a multi-year option next year. He gets a, he tries to get a multi-year deal and doesn't have the draft pick hanging over him because they can't offer the qualifying offer again. So I, I kind of question his decision to decline it. I think maybe he goes back to Boston on a two- or three-year deal at a lower AAV Maybe something similar to the Anderson deal. Yeah, I don't know. Fair. That could be. Okay, but that's it for qualifying offers. Let's get into the non-tenders now. Uh, actually, uh, excuse me. One other contract I wanted to discuss, and it's it's, it's another kind of unique one. Uh, the Padres agreed to a three-year deal with Nick Martinez. And it's kind of similar. We discussed the James Paxton contract last time. It's kind of similar where the Padres are going to pay Nick Martinez $10 million this upcoming season. And after that, it's essentially choose your own adventure game (laughs) where if the Padres, uh, if they like him, if he's pitched well for them this upcoming season, the Padres can uh, trigger two club options for $16 million each from 24 to 25. So that that would make the deal uh, in total three years and uh, $42 million. So a nice payday for Martinez. However, if the Padres decline to exercise those two options and they have to exercise both at once or neither at all, um, then Martinez has player options for $8 million each. So two years, $16 million. So the baseline guarantee here is three years, $26 million. Uh, but it's it's really, it's either going to be three years, $26 million, or it's going to be three years, $42 million, or I... I guess there's kind of a middle ground option where he just gets the $10 million this year and then both sides decline their options and he hits free agency again. There's also a bunch of incentives mixed in based on games started and games finished because Martinez was kind of a swingman for them. They, he's either going to be a mid to late innings arm or a back end rotation guy for them. And it's just, they don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but he's going to get incentives either way. Um, interesting prospect, uh, interesting contract. What do you think, I guess, first about Martinez and and the fit and the money itself, and then just about the contract structure and if we might see more like this in the future. So we have it as exactly fair in our model, 26 million in value against 26 million guaranteed. So there's zero surplus, totally right on the money. Now, part of that is we don't know really if he's a starter or reliever, but you know everybody else, Steamer, other projection systems, kind of in the same boat kind of splitting the difference even the padres don't know even he doesn't know so like he's sort of a weird case you know where is he a starter is he reliever is he both is he a swing man is he ross stripling who knows um so so they have to price it accordingly right and so i think they kind of took a shot and did their best well if it turns out you're really good at starting then okay you get starting money if you're not then you get reliever money so they're kind of hedging their bets, and you know, I've, you know, it's very unusual structure. 
Um, but you know, from the Padres' point of view, they're only on the hook for twenty-six million. Um, so you know, that seems like a reasonable deal for a guy who put up zero point five F four, but has a little bit of upside if you think he's a starter. Like he's no ace or anything. He's probably a back end starter at best. But we could be wrong, and so this is a lot of sort of hedging going on. So I, I think it nets out just fine. Yeah, I I really like. I, I think it's just a it's just a good contract for both sides where it's kind of nowhere near the same thing. It's not exactly equivalent, but it's reminiscent of the Byron Buxton extension where there's a solid baseline. And if Buxton stays healthy and performs, he's going to get paid closer to what he's worth. And that just seems like it's agreeable for both sides. You know, there's the, the player locks in a set amount of money and acknowledges that there's some risk, risk involved. And if that player performs, they'll, they'll get what they're worth. If not, then they'll get that lower baseline and the team won't be out this large commitment just because they took a chance on a, a risky player. Yeah. And so with Buxton, that was in terms of staying healthy and performing on the field with Martinez. It's kind of the role that he's in, because even if he is a solid reliever, that's just going to be less valuable than a solid back end rotation guy. So he'll still get some incentives if he is closing out games for them, but they won't be locked in at this $16 million a year mark while they use him in the seventh, eighth inning. Yeah. And I do think this is kind of a trend that's starting to emerge. And we saw it at a larger scale with Julio Rodriguez's extension, where there's a point at the contract after a few years where like, okay, if you're really great, you're going to get performed. You're going to get paid for being really great. If you're not, you know, there's still a baseline. So both sides kind of are covered. Like if he thinks, okay, from Julio's perspective, he gets, you know, he'll get real money if he's really great, but he's got to earn it. And if he doesn't earn it, then the Mariners say, okay, you're getting paid at the slower baseline. So I'm starting to wonder if this is going to become kind of a, a more common thing uh, with contracts. Yeah, and the, the commonality between the Julio and Buxton ones that's maybe not the best is that they're based off MVP voting, and that's very subjective. That doesn't always line up with value, and it puts a lot of power in the hands of the BBWA that I don't think they even want. They don't want to be dictating how much money people make at that large of a scale. It's one thing if you get an extra hundred grand for being fifth in MVP. It's another thing if it's going to be a hundred million dollar difference maker, so there's there's some questions to be had about that but i think on the whole it's it's good that these guys you know it's, it seems like a a happy middle ground of an incentive structure for these players yeah. to you know they get a solid baseline solid guarantee we're not talking about the nfl where it's a hundred million dollar contract and five million dollars of it are guaranteed <laughs> we're not talking about that yeah so there's there's a solid baseline and and you know that the players have some money to to live off of <laughs> but if things go particularly well for them, then they have plenty more on the table waiting for them. Okay, uh, let's. Uh, we've we've gone a little bit long so far. <laughs> let's fly through all these non-tenders. Um, there's a few big big names, and uh, the the biggest of all is Cody Bellinger. We already kind of previewed and, and discussed that he was a likely non-tender candidate. He was projected to make like 17 or 18 million dollars in arbitration, and he's just been really rough the last couple of years. Uh, so he was non-tendered. But he's already getting tons of free agent buzz. He's going to find... He's reportedly looking for a one-year deal, which makes sense. You know, build back your value and get a multi-year deal next offseason if you have a strong 2023. Uh, he's going to get a good landing spot on a decent amount of money. Probably not quite up to his 17-18 that he was projected for in arbitration, but he's going to get decent money. 
Um, we'll definitely, uh, I'll, I'll let you give your take on Bellinger and all of that in a second here. I just want to run through some other names first. Dominic Smith of the Mets, uh, Garrett Hampson with the Rockies. Um, scrolling through the list, the Padres, Jorge Alfaro. Um, the Giants, non-tender, just a slew of roster edge guys. No, no real names there, but they really cut down on their roster. Um, th- those were the main names from the National League. Uh, American League, we're looking at, I mentioned Luis Torrens earlier that the Mariners cut. Luke Weaver for them as well. The White Sox, Adam Engel. Um, scrolling through the Rays with Ryan Yarbrough was a bigger name. Blue Jays, Rymel Tapia and Bradley Zimmer. Red Sox, Franchi Cordero and Yu Chang. Astros, Josh James. Um, the Marlins also non-tendered Brian Anderson, which was a bit surprising. And the Tigers with Jimer Candelario. Those were a couple bigger names that they're pretty likely to get major league deals with some team and probably start for those teams. Uh, there might be a handful of other names that I missed. I'm noticing some other names that aren't on this list. Uh, Alex Reyes from the Cardinals. Um, so if there's any other big ones that you noticed that I missed, um, feel free to chime in with them. But what, what are your big takeaways from the non-tenders in general? Which players are you looking at? Yeah, so so, so let me make sure I, I, I phrase this carefully because it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. So um, money matters, right? So a lot of these names, particularly the bigger ones, are non-tendered, not because they're bad players necessarily, although they may be coming off week season, but they're getting overpaid, and the team wants to allocate that money in a more efficient way. So Brian Anderson is not a bad player. He's coming off a down year for him, but he's had some really good years before that. But now, given, you know, in the way we model this, um, we had him on our non-tender list as well. Surprising at first, we were like, oh, wow, Brian, Brian Anderson's on this list? So then when they actually did non-tender him, we weren't surprised because we saw it coming. Um, so, you know, it's basically just that, you know, they're getting paid a little bit more than they're worth. The Rays kind of started this trend a few years ago, back when uh, they non-tendered C.J. Crone. This was about four or five years ago. And there was a lot of, you know, controversy at the time about, that. hey, how could you hit a bunch of home runs? How could you get rid of that guy? Well, he was just, you know, the Rays are the Rays, and they're going to be efficient with their spending. And, you know, he just was, you know, his arbitration estimate was higher than his production. And so they didn't see that as a good use of money. And since then, other teams have picked up on that. And it's been, yes, I, you know, I think there's criticism and it's valid to say, well, you couldn't, you shouldn't just release a good player because he's overpaid, but a lot of teams will do that. Now, then the question becomes, how overpaid is he? In the case of, of a Brian Anderson or a Heimer Candelario, it's just a little bit. Um, in the case of Bellinger, it's a lot. Like $18 million for a guy who struggled the last two years, we knew that was coming. Um, Dom Smith, however, has not put it together the last couple of years. He was on our list last year. So we saw that coming as well. Um, and there's a bunch of marginal names on there. Guys who are like injured, like Josh James, just he hasn't pitched in a while. You know, so, it, you know, at a certain point, you got to kind of cut the, cut the cord and say, okay, you know, we tried, it's not happening. So there's a few cases like that. Um, but you know, Luke Voigt, because of that big monster year he had in the way arbitration works, it, it prioritizes traditional stats. So Luke Voigt had like a 40 home run year. I think he was the American League home run champ a couple of years ago. And that upped his salary. And that builds every year like, okay, that's your baseline. And then you have to you know, get a raise on top of that and then a raise on top of that. And he just hasn't been that kind of player. He's not. He doesn't really have any defensive value. So 
you know, he's scheduled to make $8 million and he's not worth that. So we had him on our list for that reason. It was not a surprise. So there's guys like that that are just overpaid. It's just a question of how overpaid are they. Uh, but you see more and more the types that even ones that are sort of marginally underpaid, uh, overpaid, like Candelario, like Anderson, are also getting cut. And some will get re-signed at a lower level. Maybe even the Dodgers re-signed Bellinger at a lower level. We had him at like $11 million. He's not worth 18 Um But a lot of these guys... You know, you can look at it and say, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> Yarborough, he's times it, but he's not worth $4 million. You know, some of these other guys are just sort of roster fodder. Uh, Adam Engel was kind of done. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising in that res respect in that they have kind of weak field value. But there's a lot of these guys who have a little bit more field value. It's just that their gap is a little bit more significant because they're overpaid. Yeah, we're going to see a whole bunch of these guys on big league rosters next year whether that's mm -hmm. they sign a big league contract like Anderson or or Bellinger or Voigt. Uh, a couple other interesting-ish names I missed were Willie Castro and Harold Castro from the Tigers, Aristides Aquino from the Reds. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, I did miss Voigt, but uh, you picked him out as well. Uh, so, so some of these guys are going to sign big league contracts right out the gate. Other ones are going to get minor league invites and still play a decent role. You know, we're going to see Adam Angle at some point. We're going to see Ryan Tapia at some point. Even if they aren't straight on big league contracts, they're going to be depth outfielders. Tons of arms on these lists that are going to get opportunities. So, yeah, there there is kind of the lower end. And, you know, we saw a few teams doing it where sometimes you non-tender pre-arbitration players. It's really just... Mm -hmm. you, Go go take a full crack at minor league free agency. We don't need you on the roster right now. Um, yeah. we, we'd rather open up the spot for a prospect or another addition. So there's some of that going on. Uh, but there's also, and I'll just bring it full circle back to the first point that you made, being non-tendered doesn't mean you're bad. And mm -hmm. it's kind of along the lines of having a negative trade value doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean they're a mm -hmm. bad player. It just means mm -hmm. their projected on-field production is not as as valuable as their projected salary it's not as high as their projected salary and so it doesn't make sense to pay them that money unless you have to or unless money doesn't matter as much to you so th there's yeah so so just uh, in total <laughs> being non-tendered doesn't necessarily mean you're bad no um, and in a weird way we come full circle from the first topic of the night mm -hmm. which is money matters right <laughs> you know and surplus value is the is the way to look at it because basically these guys would have had negative surplus if they had been tendered and so the team is basically saying that's inefficient so we're not going to tender them absolutely okay last pieces of news and then we'll wrap up um just some front office movement the rangers uh, we reported in a recent episode mentioned in a recent episode that uh, they were connected to Dayton Moore, and they have now officially hired him as a senior advisor to baseball operations. Makes makes some sense that they bring in some experience since they cut John Daniels loose and they kind of handed the reins over to Chris Young, but they still have a very experienced name in the house to, to advise them when necessary. I'm not sure exactly how involved he'll be, um, but just adding to the brain trust, it seems like this, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you have anything on that? No, not really. We talked about it before. Um, yeah, I think I think he's just like another adult in the room, and it just gives a little more comfort to the owner. Um, just because, even though I think the owner really likes Chris Young, I think there's a feeling that he still like doesn't have enough experience, and so let's get it. Just just another experienced voice in the room who's kind of been around, knows the ropes. That's really all it is. There is maybe something a little bit interesting and possibly concerning about adding Dayton Moore and his kind of, you know, more traditional mindset that he had with the Royals. 
on top of hiring Bruce Bochy as manager, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some really odd bullpen management and a lot of bunts from the Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that'll be interesting to watch, though. I mean, I do give him credit for hiring Bochy because I don't think we talked about that before. But, you know, he's, you know... <sighs> that's a win now move right but it's also it's an old school move but look you know the astros just won the world series with dusty baker who you know he will tell you he likes analytics as well so he's not totally old school but he's you know clearly respected you know sort of uh he has that sort of gravitas you know and so bochi obviously brings that as well i'm not saying dayton moore brings that but he does have that sort of air of respectability he's been around a while so they've got a little bit of that going on there yeah definitely and then the last front office move uh, didn't get, you know, saw it on Twitter for a little bit, but honestly, I even forgot it happened. <laughs> John had to, when we were doing the rundown for what we we're going to talk about today, he had to remind me about this one. Uh, but Billy Bean, uh, he moved into an advisory role with the Athletics, uh, joining kind of in in ownership and strategic operations rather than specifically baseball operations. And so he's fully handing over the reins to David Forst, uh, the GM to handling baseball operations. I think that's essentially how it's been for a couple of years now. So maybe mm. that's, maybe that's why it didn't really make huge waves or stick with me at all. It was like, okay, they're finally, you know, adjusting their titles to fit the kind of roles they've been playing the last couple of years. At least that's the vibe that I've gotten. Totally. That forced has been in charge with being kind of keeping an eye on things and advising, but he's not, he's not handling the day to day dfa's waiver claims every little trade or anything that that's not no. bean hasn't been doing that for years now so no you know and full disclosure both josh and i kind of grew up as a's fans so so and we've announced that before so we've been 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 around the block with the a's um and we've saw we've seen this coming it was clearly at least for me giving him giving vibes that he's been kind of that sort of he's half checked out already letting force mostly run the show and so it's not really a surprise in that regard uh, I found it kind of odd, though, that the news didn't really resonate much. I mean, he's he's the guy that had a movie made about him. Brad Pitt made him and revolutionized the whole sport. And he's checking out. Shouldn't there be like a parade or something? <laughs> like, not even a ripple. It's like, okay, is that even news? Uh, but I I kind of see why, because he hasn't really been the force that he was back then, 20 years or so ago. Uh, it's been coming for a while now. So, okay. Good for him. So... I get kind of two different feelings with Bean because, yeah, there's the the argument that maybe he is a little bit more checked out now and he's been with the A's for so long and he hasn't been able to pull it off. And he loves soccer. He's really fallen in love with that over the last however many years. And, and last offseason, there was some buzz that he might end up leaving the A's to go run a soccer team. <laughs> you know, I, I think it was... I think the issue was that he was interested in acquiring or being part of an ownership group for the soccer team, but he would have had to join Fenway ownership. And so it would have been a conflict of interest and he would have had to leave the A's, something along those lines. Um, and so that's kind of been, it's felt maybe like the writing has been on the walls for that for a while now that he might head in that direction. And maybe he's done really running operations for the A's, which, which seems to just be supported by this move. Right. But on the other end, why is he still sticking around? Like, after after the fire sale last offseason, and they clearly aren't going to contend this year, why is he still there if that's really where he's headed? And I think the answer is he's really competitive. And he I think he cares about his legacy 
he doesn't want to just be the money ball guy who's whose crap didn't work in the playoffs. <laughs> I, I don't think that's how he wants to be remembered necessarily. I think he'd love to just, I, I, it's a, it's a long shot. I don't think, I, I think he's realistic about it. I, I don't think he has any misgivings about it happening within the next three, five, 10 years, but I think he'd love nothing more than to win a ring with the A's while he's still in that front office. I, I think if he could choose how his life would go, that would be top of the list. Yeah, clearly that has been the thing that he's been missing, the ring. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel with the A's right now because they're just waiting on the stadium issue to resolve. And at that point, there will be more clarity. Then they get a budget. They can start to make a plan. And they're just sort of wallowing right now. So it's kind of a good time for him to leave because there's not much else to do. Having said that, he's been a minority owner, and it's probably a small ownership stake, but he does have that. And so I feel like that's probably a component as well. Like at least he keeps his toe in the water because he's an owner and he can kind of show up at meetings. So it's just more sort of like formal acknowledgement that that's his role now. Yeah, I guess the biggest argument is if he was going to leave, he probably would have done it by now. I think I think he might have a couple more years in him to see how this pans out. But if, if things go down the tank, if they have to move to Vegas or something, I think he might be gone. Fair enough. Well, okay. Uh, that's a lot of stuff we got into this episode. Only went a little bit over. Uh, is there anything we missed that you want to touch on? Um, no, just kind of keep an eye out. Um, you know, before the Rule 5 draft, the winter meetings are coming up. Um, I think the hot stove is starting to percolate. I think we'll see some, you know, we're waiting on Judge in the top of the market to kind of, you know, uh, make that move so that the other dominoes can fall. Typically, the trade market kind of, I've seen this before. Typically, it waits a little bit. It lags a little bit behind the free agent market because, you know, there's capital to spend. The owners give the front offices budgets and say, here, here's your budgets. And they kind of start with, okay, who are we going for in free agency? And there's a bunch of juggling around and musical chairs going on with that. And then, okay, they spend some. And now, okay, with the money we have left, it's either a free agent or a trade. Now, there's exceptions to those rules. Obviously, the angels are going trade first and then free agent or a mix of the two. Um, but that's generally how it works. And so I think we're kind of waiting to see some of those free agent dominoes fall next. Yeah. And there's some cases like judge where there just really isn't a lot of competition. So he can, he can kind of just take things however he wants. And then other situations like the short stops where they're all kind of interconnected with each other. And it's going to take one of those dominoes falling to get the other ones to go. So Definitely a lot to watch for there. Um, as far as as far as we go, I'm not exactly sure what our content schedule looks like. We haven't decided that yet, but there's a possibility if we uh, come back in a week and a half, we'll be basically previewing the winter meetings, which start on December 4th. So uh, if we come back that weekend with another episode, we'll catch up on all the other transactions and give a little preview of the winter meetings. If not, we'll be back the following weekend and have a recap of the winter meetings. So we shall see. Um, but yeah, uh, have anything else? Uh, no, uh, happy holidays, everybody. Absolutely. Happy holidays. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, eat a lot of good food. I know I will, uh, but that'll Sounds do good. it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the off season. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.